For this episode, we're joined by Evan Wolk. He's a managing director at Wolf Financial Management. We'll be discussing wealth management, how it works, and how it may help you. Welcome, Evan. Can you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Evan Wolk. I'm the managing director of Wolk Financial Management, residing in and working in Parkland, Florida. I am an independent financial advisor and financial planning service. Good. And um, can you explain a little bit what wealth management companies you know, do? What, what does that mean? Sure. Well, within the broad scope of wealth management companies, there's a lot of different models. So there are independents like myself, there are regional firms, there are wirehouses, which are, you know, some of those large, you know, worldwide recognized names. And within that, there's two main structures. People can either work under a commission base or a variety of different fee-based structures. Some people like myself can do either. So I'm an independent, well, a financial advisor who works generally under a fee arrangement, though I can and do occasionally, if it's right for a client, work on a commission basis. So really what people should do is, you know, look at their situation, understand, decide what's really best for themselves, and, uh, you know, come up with an arrangement that fits their needs. Right. And then I think the, 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 you know, the market is fluctuating. So does it change? Like, do you do different things under the different models, or are they just different ways to, uh, to basically compensate? Well... One of the common fee structures, if you're working under under a fee arrangement, is a percent of assets. So, you know, let's say you're you're getting a you know you're getting charged a percentage of uh, the assets under management, and clearly, as the you know the market fluctuates, certainly the advisor's compensation changes. But one thing it does do is put the advisor in essence, on the same side of the table as the client, so that theoretically, if the client makes more money, the advisor makes more money. Uh, It doesn't always necessarily work out that way. You know, again, people have to, you know, figure out what's best for them and understand who they're working with, what kind of firm they're working with, and how that person is being compensated, and make sure it aligns with their needs and their understanding. Mm So, you know, from the most recent several months, I think the market sort of fluctuated quite a bit. And um, so as a you know, general strategy, a lot of people are looking for reducing the risk uh, to, to the impacts of COVID-19 and, um, and the market response to it. But it has gone down and up and then, you know, it's very volatile. So what are the things that, you know, something a professional advisor can, can do to help the clients? Well, <laughs> it's certainly been a rocky ride. So the, the way over, over decades in the business and working with, with other people's money for many years, I've come to the belief that the best way to mitigate risk and maximize return over full market cycles is to design a well-balanced, allocated portfolio. Uh, I am an asset allocator by nature. And what that means is you have a a preset based on your risk tolerance, time horizon, the goals for your money. 
you basically put an allocation, this much in large cap stock, this much in mid cap stock, this much in small cap stock, international stocks, bonds, mm-hmm. short-term bonds, long-term bonds, medium-term bonds, municipal bonds, cash, gold, REITs, all kinds of different asset classes. And once you ascertain what percentages in each of those asset classes you should have, then you kind of keep yourself balanced to those those targets. Now, what happens like in March, when the stock market went all you know haywire, was down at some point 10 percent plus in a day for a couple yeah, of days, yeah. right? The way you take risk and what you actually put in is a rebalancing strategy. So when the market goes really haywire, you rebalance. So things mm-hmm. that have fallen less or rose in that environment, you sell, and then you buy the things that have gotten really hurt. So what it actually does is create a structured, systematic, institutional way in which to do what we all instinctively know we should do, but is really very hard to do, which is sell high and buy low. Right. So, you know, the trick is to come up with the allocation that fits your risk tolerance. So what you want is using either either models, there's sophisticated software, there's there's you know wealths of information out there. Uh, I know what I use. And uh, basically structure a portfolio so that when things like the 2008 crisis, uh, the 2000 internet bubble burst, and certainly the, uh, the, the 2020 March uh, debacle in the market, right. you never get to a point where the whole portfolio falls so much that you as a client with your hard-earned money say, that's it, I've had enough, get me out, and just panic and sell. Mm-hmm. Now, if the market has gotten there, uh, or if you know if you do, then perhaps the allocation model wasn't the right one. Changed. You know, right. maybe uh, yeah, you know things. You know, something went off the off the rails a little. Yeah. But with a cool head, and you know, trusting the, the science and and the history of it, as long as the the allocations that are in the whatever group of portfolios. Uh, you know, doesn't hit those breakpoints. Well, then, what you've done then, at depth of it, is sell some stuff that either hasn't fallen as much, or has held steady, or has, in many cases, you know, gained, like gold did, for instance, right. and buy those things that have gotten hurt. So, you know, through right. this, uh, you know, through this process, I've, you know, normally I'll rebalance maybe once a year, and I've actually rebalanced two or three times since March, but wow. you know, that's fine. That, yeah. And then, is, that, is that a risky thing when rebalancing when the things, uh, the stocks are fluctuating, meaning that, you know, because it's sort of, you know, is there like, um, I guess you guys have a process, each, each you know, advisor will have a process where yeah. often you rebalance. Well, yeah, for each, you know, for each client, each client has their own allocation, which mm-hmm. is designed specifically for them with their time horizon, their risk tolerance, and their, you know, their beliefs. 
And, you know, sometimes people, you know, for whatever reason, won't like one asset class or another, or they're, you know, partial to one. And, you know, we can overweight and, and manage that, you know, on a, on a client specific basis. But right. the, the process involves looking at each client and periodically bringing them into balance. And, you know, I have some, some internal processes that kind of alert me that, uh, that clients are at thresholds where they need to be rebalanced. So, you know, so again, it's, it's, it's putting in a system. I'm sorry. And then you have, you have numbers that hopefully triggers them. So you don't get that emotion and they're easier to explain to a client sort of saying that, look, it triggered as opposed to someone seeing the news and then basically, you know, everyone's someone, maybe a commentary on the news saying sell now or something like that, or buy now. So. Right. I mean, it's, you know, you know, obviously, you know, every day I'm looking at, you know, watching the markets and looking at client accounts uh, and, you know, some, you know, some more conservative clients, uh, you know, have had, you know, needless to say less, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you know, less volatility yep. and less need. Uh, the more aggressive clients we've been, you know, a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more into them, but, uh, you know, at least had to rebalance a little more frequently and uh, the numbers, you know, on a relative basis have been a little bit higher. But that's, uh, you know, that's to be expected. So, so when you work with someone like you, who's, you know, who's have access to their account during the helping with the investing, um, like if I was a client, do I get the, do I get access to the money that I have? Like, for example, let's say I panic, right? And I say, I want the money out of everything out. Do I have to go through you or do I still have direct access to the, uh, to the investments? Well, I mean, a lot of it depends. And, you know, I will say one of the things that I am always very clear with all of my clients uh, is, you know, I understand and they understand that whatever money I am managing for them, uh, I am the advisor, but it is their money. And, uh, you know, I can say that I have had a few clients uh, at the depth of the 2008 crisis who called me up and, you know, First thing in the morning, they're like, "Look, I couldn't sleep all night. I, it's it's killing me. You know, you have to, you know, get me out." And you know, we talk about it, and you know, we try and you know, put a level head around it. But at the end of the day, it's their money, and if they want to to pull out, we do. Right. And you know, look at other alternatives and you know ways that we can we can do that. Uh, for me, clients. You know, they always have access to their money, but mm-hmm. access is a, is hard to define because like in, for instance, uh, well, not this year with the CARES Act, they've taken away the additional penalties for early IRA distributions. But right. let's say if you're under 59 and a half and you have money in a IRA or 401k or similar type of uh, qualified retirement plan and you need that money, you take a distribution. Uh, not this year because of the CARES Act, but generally, uh, you know, that gets taxed as income plus an additional 10% IRS penalty with, you know, there are certain uh, certain situations where they, they, disc- they take uh, don't use that 10% penalty, but in most cases it is. So, you know, to say, do they have access to their money? Sure. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different products 
that have back-end fees or long-term surrender penalties and things of that nature. And those are not, by definition, you know, good or bad. It's a matter of is, is what you're getting or the, the benefits worth those costs or lacks of liquidity. And as long as a person understands everything that they own and what those potential uh, backstops are, then it makes sense. And they should certainly have enough readily liquid asset for short-term emergencies, you know, things I actually, uh, oftentimes I tell people, uh, for money that they need within three to five years, they probably shouldn't have any market exposure, certainly not, you know, stock market exposure to those because cycles, market cycles can be three to five years. And if you need money in three years and you have to sell at the bottom of the cycle, that's not helpful. So, uh, you know, investing is a long-term game. It's a long-term process. And, you know, if people need money within three to five years, they should probably not be terribly market exposed with those, those dollars. Part of the portfolio, basically. Yeah. And then, yeah, I see that. Yeah, I see that a lot. Go ahead. Yeah, go, I think you're saying you see that a lot. Um. Yeah, I see. I see that a lot in 529 accounts, which are education accounts right. uh, for kids for college and university. So I always try for clients of mine uh, once the kids get into high school. Uh, so usually, you know, let's say they're ninth grade or so. I usually work to try and or certainly advise people. To, to get that money into either you know more cash or, or or the most conservative allocations within those accounts, because by definition, if they're in ninth grade, in four years they're going to start drawing those monies to start paying for their freshman year, and the last right. thing you want to do is lose money in a college account right when you have to you know start using it. So. Uh, you know, so so that's a, a really clean example of how people need to understand the the time horizons of each account that they have and when those monies are going to be used. You know, people who are uh, at or near retirement, right? Normal, healthy person in their mid sixties, let's say, potentially, you know, could live assuming they're healthy well into their nineties. So those are people that still have, theoretically, 25, 30 years of usable life, and their portfolios have to be constructed, you know, with, with that in mind. Absolutely. I think that's, that's sometimes people forget that, and, or people have their own perceptions of how long the horizon is. And that having a third party to sort of at least remind you that uh, here's the data uh, makes, makes people really think, um, probably make better decisions, hopefully. Yeah, I tell people, you know, one of the, you know, we all use catchphrases, I guess. And it's like, you don't, you know, you don't invest uh, to, you know, to retirement, you invest through retirement. And by that, you know, means, you know, potentially, you know, hopefully people have a long, healthy retirement that's, you know, 30 plus years. Right. And and how do you see like services like uh, E-Trade, which is sort of your your, your do-it-yourself type of investing? What do you see about that versus like something that's more managed? 
you know, a lot of people like those services. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's fine. It goes back to people need to, you know, make decisions and research and do things that are right for them. Uh, you know, if, if they're a real do-it-yourselfer and they are prepared to take on the, the risks associated with that, then those kinds of discounted platforms uh, are, are great vehicles. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's nothing, not a hundred percent of anything is not right for everybody. Right. right. So, you know, well, you uh, e-trade. Right? I know some people do oh, like sure. a portion of it in the you know, managed accounts and a portion of your self-direct sort of account so that, um, you know, right. Who, who there's actually right. a, there's, yeah, there, there's various portfolio theories, one of which is, is referred to as core satellite. So let's say uh, you, somebody would hire me to run their basic core portfolio and I would do an allocation and then they would take a portion of their money and would trade it aggressively on an outside platform like that. And I can account for those balances, you know, separately. And, you know, it, it makes sense. Right. And a lot of people enjoy doing it. <laughs> well, I, th I think there is definitely, a, let's say, roller coaster type of emotions when you're investing, right? I mean, you, you, you hit it right to the strike stock, you feel great. You know, you don't, and bad earnings come out, you feel horrible, right? So that's, uh, but I think that's the danger part of it, too, because it becomes addictive, you know. Yeah, and you know, you you have heard like I know I've heard you know a lot of stories now with with so many people uh, home and you know tied to their computers and their TVs and not you know out in the broader world. I think that and and some there's been some research recently. You know, there's a lot of people that have started taking up day trading and whatnot, right. and uh, you know, but the combination of the extreme market volatility and people being locked up at home you know has yeah. kind of led that and you know as long as uh i would just say to people uh don't you know don't gamble with money you're not prepared to lose you know this is not you know don't put your whole retirement or you know money that you're going to need or your kids education funds or things like that you know right. into these aggressive stock strategies uh that's certainly not what i do i put in you know, a long-term plan, and I stick with it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And then some of the the people I know who works for, like, has worked finance industries on their own investments. You know, they misread the market, right? You know, sometimes you think the market will go down forever, and then you put in some bearish bets, and then you, then then it doesn't go that way. You know, it's because it's um, you know, you can't time it correctly. So. No, and that's you know again, like I said, I, I've been doing, I, I I've been working in financial markets for over thirty years, and if nothing else, what I've learned is I have no idea what the market's going to do <laughs> tomorrow, next right. week, next month, and I, I kind of I personally feel like it's a fool's errand to try. So right. that's how my my investing philosophy has evolved. And, That's smart. you know, the money that I manage is, again, for three to five years or longer. And I think the longer horizon you look at, the more predictive returns over time will be. Uh, 
you know, they say, right, long, long-term average returns are, you know, in, in the stock market, like S&P 500, or, you know, in and around six or, you know, six and change. But mm-hmm. hardly is the year ever in history where they've actually done that. It's always either, you know, higher or lower and generally yeah. dramatically so. Right, right. And I think that's where people sometimes forget is that, you know, to get 10%, you could have to brave through, you know, minus 10% years and then plus 30% years and then, and do it correctly through those, uh, you know, body bolt situations. Yeah. And, you know, one thing also that people, you know, we talk about is, uh, you know, they have to understand there's also a sequence of returns. Mm-hmm. So if you take it, if you start with X amount of dollars, whatever that is, and you average 6% over 20 years. And as we just said, the first year, you know, you don't know what it's going to be. So if that first year is an up 15 year, then the ending balance with the same average return is dramatically greater than if the first year is like down 10%. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these are very important factors and some, you know, a reason why I think, you know, people should, you know, work with a professional or at least talk to one and perhaps more, <laughs> more than one uh, to right. get different opinions, uh, because you gotta you gotta adjust for that. Yes, so absolutely. And do um, do you your clients are they mostly here or are they you know in different locations? Um, well, me personally, I mean, I'm based in South Florida, and a lot of my clients are local to me here. But I have clients in California, Wisconsin. Uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Virginia. Uh, I have a client in Missouri. So uh, there's, you know, I'm I'm used to doing business uh, in a virtual sense mm-hmm. and have for many years. Uh, so, you know, in, in my sense, and I, I work from home, I have a home office. So for me, uh, this pandemic hasn't been from a workflow perspective, not that, not that big a deal. Right. That's, that's a good thing. And I think it's, um, I mean, it's been a big deal for a lot of reasons, but not that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and in terms of like, you know, from a financial advisor, like, you know, finding, since everyone can have clients, all different locations, like how, like if I was looking for someone, how would I find the right advisor to, to like uh, help me? Well, you know, it always helps to talk to friends, family members, you know, people that you know, and see who they're using. Uh, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of folks out here who do what I do. I would say interview them aggressively, do a lot of due diligence, check them out. Uh, as we had discussed earlier, you know, understand the kind of firm they work with and the fee structures associated and their philosophy to make sure all those things line up with what you are trying to accomplish. Uh, At a minimum, if you're working with somebody, there's something called FINRA, which is the primary regulatory body in this business. So people can go to finra.org and there's something called broker check right there. It's free service. Uh, You could put in, you could search people by name and state and whatnot. And there's a report for everybody in the business. And look, if, if they have a clean 
no disclosure report doesn't necessarily mean they're good. And if they have a couple of disclosures, obviously depending on what they are, doesn't mean they're bad. Uh, just means, you know, it's just a starting off point. I think it's at a minimum. Well, and, I think you need both. Uh, you, you, have someone, you need to have someone you trust and you need someone who's, you know, had the intuition for the market, right? I think that's, so you first have yeah. to make sure the person is reliable from ethics point of view and then also have the right strategies that you're trying to uh, uh, approach the market with. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. And you know what? And, and people should definitely trust their gut. I am a firm believer in that. <laughs> if they're meeting with somebody and right. something just doesn't feel right, then, you know, the, the, the relationship between a client and a financial professional is an extremely personal one. And right. a lot of trust is needed both ways. And uh, if, if something's not right, then, then you're not with the right person. Good point. No, that's a very good point. I think a lot of times, you know, like in some ways your mind sometimes pick up things that you didn't realize, you know, subconsciously. So, yeah, trust your gut. And for one thing is, you know, trust is the biggest thing. So if you have any, any doubt, right, there's another advisor you probably can go to. So. Yeah. And, you know, there's, you know, again, like, you know, you look at the regulators, you know, trust, you know, you know, research, you know, there's, there's a lot of information out there, but, uh, you know, yeah, you trust your gut too. <laughs> right. And you talk about regulation, you know, there's uh, this term I've seen that says fiduciary, you know, how, like I know fiduciary from a business point of view, but like how does it apply to advisors? Well, a fiduciary is a, is a very specific regulatory term. And what it means is that you have to act that the, that the advisor is regulatory required to act in the best interests of the client. I see. Now, so for me, I have, I like to always, even with my commission clients, I work under a fiduciary standard, or at least I, right. I, I intend to. Uh, under a fee advisory agreement, I am required to, which is fine. I welcome it. Like I said, I, I work that way anyway. Uh, so uh, it really boils down to, but, it, but it's hard because, you know, it, the theory is if there are two products that are identical, mm-hmm. the client, the, the, the advisor has to recommend the one that's cheapest, best for the client, less fees right. for the, the person recommending it. I see. And the truth is that sometimes there are gray areas. Yeah. I, I think so. investing, I never really find two products to be exactly the same, you know, unless it's like index funds, or I guess. So. Right. It makes it hard. Yeah. yeah. It definitely. And, and then you just got, you know, from index funds, point, like if someone, there's a lot of talk about, you know, index funds being like sort of for just, hey, just invest in SP 500 index and you're, you know, that's it. Is that something that, um, like, differences between active versus passive management? Well, sure. And I'll go back to uh, the original, the, the, the prior conversation where we talked about, you know, my philosophy as an asset allocator. Mm-hmm. So I believe, and there's people who have just as much experience and knowledge in this business as myself who have a different belief. But this is what I think, is that the vast majority of returns over time and the risk in the market inherent 
is more determined by your asset allocation amongst different asset classes than the act than, than actually what you're buying. So like for me, okay, if I'm gonna use a US large cap equity allocation for a client, I'm just gonna buy the lowest cost, let's say for the sake of argument, S P five hundred index fund or ETF, right. right, that has very low expenses, is passively managed, mm-hmm. and just put that in his in the sleeve and that's that, right? Mm-hmm. And then as the S and P goes up relative to other other investments, other allocations. Class of allocation, yeah. Trim it during a rebalance and buy more of it if it falls as under a rebalance. Now, active managers, whether those be separately managed accounts, uh, financial professionals buying and selling individual stocks on their own, uh, or mutual funds, those are people that are out there. And again, to hold the uh, to hold the idea on large cap U.S. equity, they're basically trying to beat the S and P 500, right? right. Well, right. I personally don't think over long periods of time managers can beat the passive index, and especially not when you take into account that those people are all working for something. So there are fees associated. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, there are fees in passive structures, but they're much lower and, right. you know, pretty, you know, as compared to what can be, you know, significant fees depending on the asset class, depending on, on the manager, depending on a lot of things. But understand, you know, on January 1st of any new year, that active manager has that fee that they have to beat in order to outperform the index, they're starting behind the eight ball right from the get. And I just don't believe that any of them do over long periods of time. Now I will say there are some asset classes where I do use funds or active management where I think it makes sense. Uh, There's some alternative strategies. There's some international, there's, there's places in and around the market where I think it may make sense for some clients. Uh, But, for the vast majority of most asset classes, uh, I prefer passive. Got it. Got it. No, I think this is a good advice. Uh, you know, someone who's who doesn't spend as much time, you know, looking at different investment options and different, you know, um, you know, strategies. It's always better to you know talk to someone who's been living that life for decades, basically. And, <laughs> it feels like a lifetime and a half right now. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I feel like um, I was chatting with someone recently about the fact that even though it's only been like three months since when the whole shutdown started, it feels like it's. It definitely feels more than three months. You know, it feels like a, a year ago or something uh, since this whole thing. It started. does. So I think, uh, yeah. Right. So I, I mean, twenty twenty. Like, yeah, it's it's been some year, and we're you know half done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and then and then I think that's where I, I'm looking ahead. You know, I'm not a you know advisor or anything. I'm just just a you know watching the the market. It's it's unpredictable because normally you have earnings come up. You just say, oh, my earnings beat or not beat, so I know it's you know my 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 strategy is correct. And now you don't even know the earning. Most of the companies sort of withdraw their earnings uh, expectations. You know, so, well, right, and that would you know you're you're kind of almost you know dovetailing into my belief that 
you know, if you want to own large cap U.S. equity, you know, buy something like the S&P 500 or, you know, the Russell 1000, something, you know, right. something along those lines, keep your expenses as low as possible. And look, the market is going to do what the market's going to do. Right. And like you said, you know, in, in February, nobody, maybe not nobody, but, you know, really, realistically, no one saw yeah. the, the turmoil coming. And right. I think equally at the depth at the end of March, when, you know, again, there's, you know, circuit breakers stopping the market from trading and 10% moves interday and all kinds of craziness. Uh, if we had looked back, if, if somebody had told you at the end of March where the markets would be, you know, yeah. in June, they'd have yeah. thought you insane. <laughs> yeah. So uh, all the more reason why. Uh, I don't try and make short-term predictions because I think it's a fool's no, errand. That's a very the market's going to do what it's going to. Yeah, market's going to do what it's going to do. Decide how much you want your personal wealth tied up in each asset class and rebalance to it. No, that's a that's a good advice always. Um, so, so in terms of like finding out more, like say someone was listening to this and saying, you know what, I've been investing in my four hundred one k or IRA myself, but you know, I'm not, I'm a little bit afraid. So I should seek out a professional help um, to, to you know, get some advice. How would they should proceed? You know, you mentioned the certifications, but if just a person starting, what would they should do? And what should well, they bring actually, you know, to that conversation? Well, you know, they should, you know, again, you know, try, try and, and find somebody either, of, you know, through a friend or a family member that they mm-hmm. trust. Uh, Start slow and build confidence with who you're going to work with. Uh, but make sure you come to the table, you know, prepared to discuss, you know, don't, don't expect good output from a financial professional if you've withheld information or right. not been forthcoming with that. So, like, I, you know, I know, uh, you know, we tell, you know, when, when you profile and when you bring on a client and when you discuss their situations and you talk about risk mm-hmm. and when the market's going all go, go bang, you know, gangbusters, right? right? Well, nobody has any, you know, nobody is scared, right? Everybody, right. you know, nobody yeah, has any risk fear, right? Right. And, you know, you tell them, hey, you know, you could be down 25%. You know, this portfolio could be down 25, 30% in, in a quarter if things go off the rails a bit. Are you okay with that? And they swear up and down, you know, yes. <laughs> and then the markets, you know, then they get a statement that down 15% and they go crazy. You know, it's uh, so be, be prepared to be honest, both with mm-hmm. yourself and your advisor. You know, and and understand. And again, I can't stress enough. You know that it, it's investing is a long term process. Right. No, that's a good advice. So keep your eyes on the goal. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like um it's like one of those uh, going to sports or you know a battle, whatever you want to call it. It's like knowing yourself is a key part, and investing being a long term thing. You know, you have both. You have to know yourself, but you also know what happens if you're under stress. You know, like what would you behave, and then that that honesty right. is actually very difficult to 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 get people to to acknowledge. Yeah, it is. It is, and and I will say, you know, things change, right? Yeah. So, 
we didn't really, you know, I just want to get this out there. So like I said, when I bring clients in, we do a, a, a detailed analysis and we come up with an allocation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the allocations are living, breathing things. I mean, naturally, as people get older, their allocations will change, change. as they get deeper into retirement. You know, we tend to pull risk back. But these are not like set it and forget it situations. So yeah. if situations change, uh, you lose a job, you change jobs, you have a kid, yeah. somebody dies, you know, death in the family, get an inheritance. You, now you have a, a different asset base. All of those things would prompt a complete reevaluation of your target allocations. Right. So you should always make sure that these things are looked at periodically. And certainly when there's a, a change of life type of event. And once you do have these things put in place, uh, you should really be looking at least quarterly, every calendar quarter, quarterly. at the portfolio's performance, making sure it's it's doing what you expect, you're hitting the benchmarks that you want, uh, and it's kind of it, it's doing what you need to do. Yeah. No, I think that's that's good advice. And then sometimes people don't want to look at it when the market's down, and or they really want to look at it every day when the market's up. So, and and then make decisions based on that. Uh, so that's, you know, I know that I do that myself sometimes. But uh, <laughs> speaking from personal experience, so. Um, yeah. But I think I do think that people should. You know, definitely try it out. You know, you don't have to do put all your assets into you know in one place. In, uh, but it's something that you can sort of see how how well um, you know having a professional you know uh, discussion um, benefits you. And then some of the discussion here even is very educational just for me. So yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, and, you know, people should certainly uh, interview financial professionals with whom they intend to work ask detailed questions about right. you know their background their philosophy what they the types of products they like to use you know all of those things are you know super important and you know even if you know somebody could be super ethical and very successful and you know completely reputable but if if they if they're not providing the service that you want then they're not a right fit for you right yeah, I think that there's a combination of both. You you have to trust and you have to be able to be honest with someone. Sometimes just because, you know, like you trust a person, someone in your family, even your parents, you don't necessarily have the same honesty just because for whatever reason, the, you know, the personality doesn't allow that. I think what you mentioned about being able to be honest, have an honest conversation with your advisor, I think that's a very important, um, important thing. Oh, it's critical because... You know, if, if, you know, the last thing I know that I want is somebody telling me one thing that turns out to be not true because I have to work on, you know, what I, what I believe to be in the client's best interests. And if I design something and implement it and then the, you know, the market does what it does and we got the, the outcome that I think we were shooting for over time, but the client's not happy. Well, that's, that's, you know, it's an unacceptable result. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a very, so. very educational thing for someone just just starting to think about it. And um, I appreciate your time. And uh, so hopefully, um, you know, once 
you know, everyone has a little bit of time right now to think about things. You should do your financial planning. You know, that's it's not the funnest thing, but it's the important thing. Yeah, I mean, people need to people need to get their affairs in order. Uh, right. And you know, one of you know part of part of my process is, uh, you know, I, I do not give tax or legal advice, uh, but I work with clients, attorneys, and accountants and whatnot, and we make sure that you know people need to have their wills and or or trusts and estates set up. Uh, they need to have their assets titled correctly. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that people do wrong that seem very simple. And then they end up getting, uh, having problems at inopportune moments, uh, you know? So, you know, no, absolutely. more qualified we, professionals looking at things, the better outcomes tend to be. Yeah, the experience on the laws and stuff is important, especially for like a state plan. I think we did a one uh, a couple of podcasts back with uh, Lisa Glassman, and then she sort of went oh, through the benefits. Outstanding yeah, the, attorney. Yeah, and then very, you know, it's very educational also just to, like a lot of people listen to that episode just, just because I think it's it's something people face when they're most stressed, you know, and then you want to plan it when you're least stressed. I think that's where... Um, you know that that's a, probably the only advice right. I give people. So it's uh, yeah. I mean, nobody. It's uh, you know, having you know conversations about wills and trusts and life insurance and beneficiaries and all those things are you know, no one, uh, no one likes to face their mortality or have those discussions. They're not yeah. a lot of uh, you know, not nobody looks thing. forward to to dealing with those issues, but it's important to do so. And, yes. uh, you know, that's obviously part of my process to make sure, uh, we have those discussions. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I hope, I hope people listen to this and then, uh, you know, they, they, they find this useful. And, um, and I think, um, our goal is to keep on educating our audience. Well, I'm, uh, I'm happy and available to answer any questions. Uh, if anybody in your audience, uh, wants to contact me, they should feel free and I'd be happy to have a discussion. Thanks, Evan. It was a pleasure to have you for this episode. And thanks to our listeners. We'll continue to bring you topics that may interest you from a local perspective. Please subscribe to get our next episode as soon as it's available.